Welcome back to What's Up With Your Down There. I'm your host, Miriam Rosenberg, Certified Nurse Midwife at Legacy Emanuel Midwifery in Portland, Oregon. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most common sexually transmitted infections in the United States, herpes. What's up with your down there? 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 Down there. So what is herpes exactly? Herpes is a sexually transmitted virus. You can get it from another person who is infected with the virus from any type of contact that involves the mucous membranes touching. So what do I mean by mucous membranes? Basically, those are the shiny pink parts of your body. There are mucous membranes in the penis, in the vulva, the vagina, the mouth. These are all areas where if you rub that part of your body against someone else who has a herpes infection, you can become infected with the virus. Transmission is much more likely if the other person is having an active outbreak of the herpes virus at the time that you two are touching those mucous membranes. However, people who have herpes can shed the virus even when they're not having any symptoms. So even if they are not currently having an outbreak, it's still possible for you to become infected with the virus. Herpes is an infection that currently does not have a cure. So if you get infected with herpes, it is something that you will have for the rest of your life. It doesn't go away. There is no treatment. Mostly it involves managing your symptoms. So some people will have frequent outbreaks, sometimes as often as monthly or even more often than that. Other people will have one outbreak in their lifetime and may never have another outbreak, but they still carry the virus and they still can potentially transmit the virus to other people. There are different ways to test for herpes. One is if you think that you're having an outbreak, you can go into a clinician's office and they can actually swab the area and do what's called a PCR test, which actually looks for DNA of the virus in that body fluid or those tissues. This test really works best if you have a pretty new outbreak. Most of the time with herpes, if you have little blisters or or what we call vesicles, We're going to be able to swab those best if they're fresh, but if the blister bursts and you have a little ulcer left behind, it's a little bit harder to swab that area. The other option for testing is a blood test where we're actually looking for antibodies that your own immune system forms when you've been infected with the herpes virus. Um, You'll hear that called an IgG test sometimes. This is a blood test that we can do for someone who either has never had symptoms or is not currently having symptoms to see if they've been infected in the past. The tests we can do are going to test for two different types of herpes, type 1 herpes and type 2 herpes. Speaking in generalities, type 1 herpes can live in the mouth or on the genitals. Type 2 herpes is much more commonly associated with a genital infection. It's much less common to see it on the mouth. Previously, I think people thought that type 1 herpes was just an oral infection. So they'd say, oh, I have cold sores, um, but it's not herpes. That's different. But actually, cold sores are the product of an oral infection with type 1 herpes. 
But more and more, we're seeing people who have a genital infection with type 1 herpes. So if a blood test comes back saying that you have been infected with type 1 herpes, the tricky part is that we don't necessarily know if that's an oral infection on your mouth or if that's a genital infection on your down there. So sometimes these test results can be a little bit confusing. There's a lot of stigma around herpes. People who have just been told that they've been exposed to herpes from a previous partner or that they've been infected with herpes often worry that this is a lifelong death sentence on their dating life. I do really like to destigmatize that a little bit. Herpes is generally an annoying virus to have. It can have long-term serious repercussions. If you become pregnant and you have an outbreak at delivery, there is the chance that the baby could become infected with newborn herpes, which can have serious repercussions for babies. However, for most people who have genital herpes, it's more of an annoyance, and the likelihood of serious long-term health risks with a genital herpes infection are pretty rare. If you know that you have herpes, it is really important to share that information with potential sexual partners so that you can talk about ways to reduce the risk of transmission if your partner does not have herpes or to find out that maybe your partner does have herpes and that this is going to be a non-issue for you. There are some people that use specific dating websites for people that have herpes, but I think that that can increase the stigma around it with the idea being that people who have herpes should only date other people who have herpes, whereas I think that we really need to be clear that This is an infection that a lot of people have. There are lots of ways to reduce transmission, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more with my guest today, and that this is not a death sentence. So I think being open and having honest communication and not treating this as a disease that makes you a bad person or unclean or immoral in any way is really important and just making this out to be exactly what it is, which is a virus that you can catch from another person and that you can give to another person and that needs to be managed. In addition to the stigma that can exist around herpes, I find that there's a lot of misinformation out in the popular culture about herpes, but even among healthcare providers, I hear people saying things that are not true or that are inaccurate about herpes infections, herpes transmission, and I just wanted to clarify some of those misconceptions today. So I asked Terry Warren, who is an adult nurse practitioner and the former owner of the Westover Heights Clinic here in Portland, to come on the show. She is the author of The Herpes Handbook and The Good News About the Bad News, which are both books that are available that go through all of the intricacies of herpes infection, herpes transmission, complications from herpes, how to talk to sexual partners about your herpes infection. She's also a consultant for the American Sexual Health Association and is available to answer questions on their forum. She is one of the country's foremost experts in herpes research and herpes management, and I felt so honored to get to sit down with her and answer some of your questions about the herpes virus. What led you to get so involved with herpes in the first place? I was in nursing school and was uh, dating a microbiologist at Oregon Health Sciences University who specialized in gonorrhea. So we traveled, did a lot of traveling around the world to various scientific meetings. And I became really interested in sexually transmitted infections. Opened Westover Heights Clinic in 1982. And eventually the University of Washington approached and asked if our clinic could uh, be a site for herpes research trials. And I said, yes, we could do that. And that's where it all started. Gotcha. So you came to this through sort of a more general interest in 
microbiology and sexually transmitted infection, but the focus on herpes was because of the collaboration there? Yes. Cool. Yes. Gotcha. And, and when I did my um, S my training, the, there are center for, centers for STD training around the country. There, I think there are, I don't know, eight or ten of them. And I did mine in Seattle and became acquainted with some of the herpes researchers up there. So that was kind of a natural next thing to happen. My sense as a clinician is that herpes seems different than other STDs in terms of how much the general public and even healthcare providers understand about it. Why do you think that is? Well, I agree with that. Things like gonorrhea and chlamydia are really simple because you give people antibiotics and it goes away. More complicated are things like HIV, herpes, and HPV because they are viruses and because there aren't cures for them. I also think that clinicians view herpes as an annoyance um, not a big deal, nothing to get too worried about. I think they don't want to talk about it also because it has to do with sexual health, and I don't think that all clinicians feel comfortable talking about sexual health. I think they don't know what to do with people who test antibody positive but have no symptoms. I think it's emotionally complicated, takes up a lot of time in your office day to tell someone they have a lifelong sexually transmitted infection that's stigmatized. So I think that instead of really learning a lot more about it, I think a lot of clinicians avoid it, don't want to deal with it. I remember giving a talk in Arizona at a lunch meeting with a group of obstetricians, and we were talking about testing during pregnancy. And, you know, that's not a, that's not a thing that all OBs do by any stretch of the imagination. And I remember saying that if I were an OB, I would find out who has herpes and who doesn't, because we know that people who don't have herpes and get it in the third trimester are most likely to infect their baby. So it'd be really nice to know which couples are discordant, that is one's infected and the other is not. And I would also like to know who's got herpes and doesn't know it, just in terms of risks of delivery. And I remember this OB was so angry at me. He was just spitting out lunch food at me saying, why would you ruin a perfectly wonderful pregnancy by telling somebody that they have herpes? And my response was, why would you ruin a perfectly lovely pregnancy by having a baby get herpes when you probably could have avoided that? So I think that there are, there are all sorts of different ways that clinicians look at this, uh, not not in the same way that an expert might. So it sounds like you have some disagreement about whether herpes testing is an appropriate screening test routinely for pregnant women. I do. I have, I mean, I, I certainly have some OBs that agree with me and a lot that don't. But I think if you ask women, if 80% of people that have HSV2 genital infection don't know it, would you want to know before you delivered a baby? I think that most people would say yes. So there's sort of a patronizing attitude of a clinician deciding who does and does not need screening for type 2 herpes, and that the rationale that people use for it might be very different if they're coming at it from a clinical standpoint versus from an individual personal standpoint? Yes, yeah. I think that that's true. And you made reference to type 2 herpes. Can you... Uh, give us a little bit of an overview between the two different types of herpes, type 1 and type 2. HSV2 is almost always at least a genital infection. Some people have it 
you know, they give oral sex to and have intercourse with the same person and get it in both locations. In their mouth and in their on their genitals. Yeah, that's not common, but it but it happens. Type two doesn't like the mouth very well, but it really likes the genitals a lot. So we know that if you take a hundred people that test positive accurately for HSV2, and you ask them to swab their genitals every day looking for virus for four months using a very sensitive test, 95% of them will shed virus from the genital tract with HSV2. With HSV1, it's not quite as picky. It certainly causes the vast, vast majority of cold sores, but it can also cause genital infection. And more commonly right now, it's causing a lot of genital infection. So right now, HSV-1 is the cause of the majority of new genital herpes infections. And that's a Still, shift, right? So I think that the long, a, a lot of the public understanding and even some clinicians are still under the impression that type 1 herpes lives in your mouth, causes cold sores. Type 2 herpes lives on your genitals, causes genital outbreaks of herpes. And right. I think this is such an important piece to realize that type 1 is now the predominant cause of new genital herpes infections. Right. And that the shift is due to an increase in the acceptance of oral genital sex in our society. And it's also due to the increase in the number of people who are not acquiring HSV-1 in their childhood. So it used to be that 80 to 90 percent of our population was positive for HSV-1. But as people have become aware that cold sores are caused by herpes, they're more careful about kissing their kids with cold sores. And as a result, we have a bunch of teenagers entering their sexual maturity absent any HSV-1 antibody, which means that they are then susceptible to getting HSV-1 genitally through receiving oral sex from someone who is infected orally. Just to clarify, what you're saying is that having an oral infection with type 1 herpes is protective against getting a genital infection with type 1 herpes? It is largely protective. I have seen one case in 35 years of practice where someone reported a history of cold sores and acquired HSV-1 genitally. Wow. So there is some protection if you have type 1 herpes orally. If you have uh, type 1 herpes genitally, does it protect you from getting type 2? So that's an interesting question, and we don't know the answer. So we think having HSV-1 genital infection may offer some local protection against getting HSV-2 genitally, but we really don't know that for sure. There are different types of immunity that are built from herpes infections, local uh, cellular immunity and systemic immunity. And so we, we think that there's a possibility that if you have type 1 genitally, you probably won't acquire type 2 genitally. And we know that if you acquire type 2 first, you're not going to acquire type 1 subsequently. I'm curious then. Okay, so I'm logically thinking through this. So I have a partner who has a type 1 genital herpes infection. I do not have any evidence of herpes orally or genitally. Maybe it's in my best interest to perform oral sex on my partner, pick up an oral case of type 1 herpes in the hopes that it will prevent me from getting type 2 herpes. So does it protect me against genital type 1 if I get an oral infection with type 1 from my my positive yeah. partner? No, that 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 is true. If you have herpes in one location of one type, whether it's type 1 or type 2, then you are highly unlikely to acquire that same type in a new location. What is the difference in in terms of how the two different strains act, type 1 and type 2? 
type 1 prefers the oral area and it recurs there pretty often. The next frequently recurring is HSV2 genital infection. Then the, the next frequent recurring down the line is HSV1 genital infection. And then the next is HSV2 oral infection. So these viruses have places that they like and that they reactivate more. Type 1 orally and type 2 genitally are the most frequently reactivating viruses. HSV2 orally is the least frequently reactivating virus. And in terms of the general population in the United States, how many people have herpes that, at this point, do we think? We have data for people ages 14 through 49 in the U.S., and we know that about 47% of people have HSV-1, and about 16% of people have HSV-2 in that age group. And the older you get, the more likely it is you'll have one of these infections. And are these people who know that they carry one of these viruses, or are these people who, if you swab a random sample of the population, that's the number of people who are going to come back positive? It's a random sample. It's not people who know. So 80% of people with type 2 don't know, and 70% of people with type 1 don't know. That's astounding to me. So 80% of the people who carry the type 2 herpes virus are unaware of the fact that they're infected. Correct. Um, and that some of that is because they're not having symptoms, but some of it is because... Some of it is because their symptoms are so mild that they don't think it's herpes. Some of it is that they confuse their symptoms with someone, something else. Like they might have genital itching and they think, oh, I have yeast. So they treat it with yeast medicine, they get better. Comes back again, they treat it with yeast medicine, gets better. Right. Um, so kind of like recurrent yeast that doesn't respond to yeast treatment. Or they think it does respond because it goes away, mm -hmm. like these outbreaks too. Some of it is that they're having outbreaks in, tr in areas that they aren't thinking of as traditionally genital, like outbreaks on your butt or on your thigh, on your belly. With oral herpes, they might be having outbreaks in their nose instead of on the lip. So it's things like that that are a slightly atypical of what people think of when they think of herpes outbreaks that they're missing in terms of symptoms for herpes. Which is funny, because I think my perspective as someone who's not a specialist in herpes is that people are often coming into my office convinced that some sort of lesion on their genitals is herpes, and in fact it's an ingrown hair or some other thing that is not herpes. So I think I see the flip side of things, where people are thinking that their symptoms are always herpes even if they're not, versus it sounds like the more common scenario is probably that people do have herpes and are attributing their symptoms to something else because it doesn't recognize what they and, think and, herpes looks like. Can you talk a little bit about what herpes looks like and what it feels like and what people should be alerted to as a reason to go get tested with a clinician? So it can be anything from multiple painful lesions to a single, very small, non-tender lesion. And it can present as a fissure or a crack. So it could be long and it could be painless or it could be multiple lesions. So it, it can be a wide variety of things. And the other thing is that for both men and women, herpes can occur within the urethra. And so what you get there is you get pain with urination. And I think for women in particular, probably men also, but women in particular, a lot of urinary tract infections and herpes get mixed up. So people say, I have pain with urination. The clinician dips their urine. There might be slight numbers of white cells. Uh, so they get treated for urinary tract infection, and they get better. And so then six months later, they come back and say, oh, I have another one of those. So they just get antibiotics. 
when in reality, they probably have herpetic urethritis, lesions dumping small numbers of white cells into the urine. But then when it gets sent off for culture, if it gets sent off for culture, no bacteria grows. So that's a, that's a pretty common one. Um, and of course, and the exact amount of time that it would take for antibiotics to make people start feeling better from their supposed right. urinary tract infection with bacteria is about the same amount of time that a genital herpes outbreak is going to start to feel better because of its natural course. That's right. Tricky. Exactly. What kinds of things can trigger outbreaks in people who have been infected with the virus? You know, that's kind of a mystery. I mean, people individually will tell you what triggers outbreaks for them, but there's a lot of variety, and most of it we really don't know. I think um, people will report some things that I, I hear is lack of sleep. If your immune system goes down somewhat, that's gonna that can trigger an outbreak. So that could be from lack of sleep. It could be from... Um, extended periods of stress, not like I'm having a bad day, I'm going to have an outbreak. It's not like that. It's like extended stress that lowers the immune response. People who take steroids for any reason can elicit an outbreak because, again, that's taking away the immune response. Anything that's immunosuppressive is probably a good candidate for triggering an outbreak. For some people, for, for oral herpes, the, the one known and proven trigger is sunlight. So it's always good to use a heavy-duty sunscreen when being out in the sun if you have a history of cold sores. For some, extended or rough sex can trigger a genital herpes outbreak, so irritation of the tissue can be a factor. Some women in particular, as they go through the hormonal changes of menopause or childbirth, may experience more or fewer outbreaks. So there's no sort of consistency with that one, but people do report differences in outbreak frequency around hormonal changes. So those are some of the big ones. Could you talk about some ways to reduce the possibility of transmission between discordant partners? So sexual relationships in which one partner has herpes and the other one does not. The best tools there are antiviral therapy taken daily, reduces transmission by about half. Condoms from, ma from an infected male to an uninfected female reduce transmission by 96% when, wow. when used regularly. They're not as effective for reducing transmission between infected women and uninfected men because parts of the penis may be exposed below a condom when having intercourse with an infected female. And then it turns out that disclosure to a partner actually uh, lengthens the time in the relationship to the time when transmission occurs. So in a way, that's reducing transmission. And that's probably due to the fact that if you tell your partner that you have herpes, if you feel an outbreak coming on, you're able to say, hey, I could be having an outbreak. Let's avoid sex or do something different. So that's a factor. And then symptom awareness being aware of prodromal symptoms or the symptoms that come before an actual outbreak comes can be useful in reducing transmission as well. I mean, what is the likelihood? Let's say you have a one-time sexual encounter, you have unprotected sex with an HSV-positive person. What are the chances you're going to get a herpes infection from that one encounter? That depends on if they're taking antiviral medicine or not. It depends on the frequency of their recurrences because we know that people who have frequent recurrences shed virus more frequently than those who are either asymptomatic or have few symptoms. So that's a huge factor. That's a, a really tough question to to ask but 
generally speaking, a single encounter is not that risky. I, I couldn't give you a percentage because there's so many factors at play there. But I, I, I would not be too alarmed about a single encounter. And I certainly see people who are very alarmed about a single unprotected sexual encounter. So do I, which is why I asked you the tricky question, but I appreciate you <laughs> taking a stab at it. <laughs> so often the situation is that people don't know anything about their partner. They don't know if they're on antiviral therapy. They don't know if they have herpes. They may not even know if condoms are used. I would say it's probably at one in a thousand. Might be more if that person doesn't know they have herpes, aren't taking antiviral medicine, condoms aren't used. Certainly condoms are a good barrier. They're not perfect from females to males, but they're a, they're a good strategy. So if condoms are used, I would say your chances are greatly reduced. And if, if it's a female having intercourse with a condom-protected male, that's a very low-risk encounter given that condoms reduce transmission so much from males to females. Outbreaks can happen anywhere between waist and knees, not shedding. So viral okay. shedding occurs from mucous membranes. It does not occur from thick skin like bottoms or bellies or thighs. There's no risk there. Virus cannot get through the thick skin of the buttocks or the abdomen or the thigh. Outbreaks can show up there, but shedding does not occur there. So if people have no genital to genital contact, but have contact with those other parts of the body, that's not really a risk. There has to be contact with the type of tissue that is thin enough for virus to be shed. And shedding is just giving off virus, and that can happen with or without symptoms. And I think that's the hardest part for most people to deal with is the concept of asymptomatic, that is no symptoms, viral shedding, giving off the virus. So to, to know that there isn't a day when you can say to your partner, today I will not infect you. You can't say that to the kinds of sexual contact like intercourse or oral sex. And even just genital to genital rubbing is some risk for herpes, even without penetration. I wanna move on to the mailbag. This person wrote in, I have type two herpes genitally and unfortunately gave it to my partner after about nine months of being together. I've been on daily acyclovir to prevent outbreaks. I haven't had an outbreak in months. My partner, on the other hand, has been struggling with getting outbreaks almost once a month and takes a lot of acyclovir. My question is, if he has an outbreak, does that put me more at risk of getting an outbreak as well? Or since I already have herpes, it's kind of more based on other triggers within my body. It's based on other triggers within her body. Okay, so his frequent outbreaks are not gonna increase the frequency of her outbreaks. No. I think that's very reassuring to a complicated question. The next one is, how long after you've been exposed to herpes will a blood test come back positive? I, I think the appropriate term is how long after you're infected with herpes. So Thank remember you. that there's no such thing as exposure. There's an encounter where you could be exposed, but there's no such thing as just being exposed and being positive on an antibody test. Either you're infected or you're not. That's an it's important like, clarification. It's like pregnancy. You're not exposed to semen. You're either pregnant or you're not. <laughs> it's, it's like that. So I think it's important to, for people to understand that because I think a lot of clinicians say to people, oh, this just means you were exposed. That's just not true. A positive, a truly positive antibody test means that you are both infected and it's potentially infectious to others. So how long after you become infected will you be positive on an antibody test, I think is the question that you're asking me. The answer is you can be, it can be anywhere from 10 days, going from negative to positive is 10 days, or it can take as long as 12 weeks. Now, 
that's a rare thing to take that long. And I think it's important to note that there are good blood tests and there are bad blood tests. So the absolute inappropriate blood test is called an IgM test. With other disease states, the IgM type antibody comes up before the IgG type antibody. But in herpes, they come up about the same. And the IgM blood antibody test is extremely poor. In my experience, 80 to 90% of positive IgM tests are false positives. The Center for Disease Control says never to use that test, but for some reason, clinicians continue to use it. The other thing is that the IgG test that's commonly used misses 30% of type 1 infections and 8% of type 2 infections. So it's not a perfect test, and these numbers are compared to the gold standard herpes western blot. So really at this point, the western blot is the gold standard. Absolutely. PCR swabs would be really safe for swabs done directly on the genitals. Right. And this does dovetail nicely into the next question, which was, I went in for routine STD screening and later found out that they didn't test me for herpes because it's not part of the standard panel. Why? There are several reasons for that. The Center for Disease Control in their STD treatment guidelines states under the screening section that herpes antibody testing should be considered for the person seeking STI screening. It isn't necessary to screen the entire population, and we should, you should be aware that there are false positives on this test. So we, can, we included a herpes antibody test in every single patient that we screen for sexually transmitted infections in our practice unless they decline specifically. We did that because it's the most prevalent sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. It's not the most incident, but it is the most prevalent. So why skip it? I think the issue of false positives is a real one. And it's something that, you know, I think referencing what you said earlier about the amount of time this conversation takes and the nuance involved is also, I think, a part of it. I think that when someone comes in and asks me to test me for everything, and I ask them about their symptoms and about their sexual practices, and then we have this long conversation about herpes testing and what it what I can offer if they're not having any symptoms and what the false positive rates are and what information that will yield. And that conversation takes a while. So I think that sometimes, you know, given that the CDC is not hard and firm about, yes, you must test everyone for this as part of a routine sexually transmitted infection panel, means that in some ways it's just the easier path to not have the conversation and just run the other tests. And what I say to people is, you know, we're going to we're going to test for all this stuff, including HSV. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a 47% chance you're going to become out positive for type 1. If you do, we can't tell you where it is. There's a chance you'll come out positive for type 2. We're going to look at the number. If it needs confirmation, we're going to do it. We don't have that conversation so much, you know, what about a pap smear where we get HPV? Then what mm-hmm. are we going to do? I think we can deal with those things after the results come back. I do say, you know, this is the most common sexually transmitted you might have. And you should consider doing some reading before we get these test results back. But I, t- I do try also to get some sort of sense of their sexual history. You know, I always ask, how many lifetime partners have you had? If they tell me more than 25, I'll say, you know, there's a reasonable chance that this could be positive. If they tell me two, then it's a lot less likely. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I think that's a su- super important question. So, and I, I appreciate your response on it. The next one is from a man who has sex with men, and he says... I'm taking PrEP uh, for HIV prevention. Does it reduce my chances of getting herpes? No. 
No. Tell us more. We don't have any scientific evidence that that's true. We know that it reduces the risk of acquiring HIV, but we don't have any information that it reduces the risk of acquiring herpes. Now, maybe the research just hasn't been done on that, but so far we don't have any evidence that that's true. And in fact, recent research indicates that men who use PrEP are getting more and more other sexually transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. And is that because uh, of decreasing condom use or is that... Yep, yeah, we think so. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So in, in terms of people who are on PrEP for HIV prevention, they it would behoove them to use the same methods to reduce their chances of getting herpes as anyone else, including Absolutely. condom usage and asking partners about their history and things like that. Yep. Is there anything new in our understanding or treatment of herpes that is kind of on the cutting edge and that you think people should know about? The newest thing, I think, the new direction is therapeutic vaccines. That is vaccines that treat people who are already infected to boost their immune response to the virus. So that's kind of the place we're going. So I think that the focus right now is on those therapeutic vaccines, trying to help boost the immune response of people who have herpes infection already. Are there any other misconceptions or things that you want people to know about that you find yourself regularly responding to that I haven't asked about? I have a lot of parents that are worried about infecting their children through non-sexual, non-kissing methods, like what if they sleep in my bed? What if we? What if they touch my laundry? What if... What if, what if, what if they share a drink with me? These are not concerns for us. So parent to child transmission is a huge worry for people, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. The, the transmission that does happen between adults and children would be someone with a cold sore kissing um, someone who, a, a child who's uninfected. But the other stuff, not to worry. And I think that's a huge concern that I get lots of questions about. I really do appreciate you coming on and answering all of my questions. Thanks for having me. That was Terry Warren, adult nurse practitioner and author of The Herpes Handbook and The Good News About the Bad News. You can check out The Herpes Handbook for free as an online download at www.herpeshandbook.com. And you can submit questions directly to Terry by checking out the American Sexual Health Association's Herpes Forum. For those of you that are listening that already have herpes, I also wanted to touch on some things about living with herpes and how to manage outbreaks. There are several things that can be done to help limit the frequency and severity of outbreaks. So, some people who have frequent outbreaks are going to want to start suppression. So that's taking a daily antiviral pill to reduce the number of times in a given year you have a herpes outbreak. This helps both with your own comfort, and it also helps reduce the transmission rate if you have a partner who does not have herpes. The alternative to that is that when you get an outbreak, you can take antivirals to help reduce the severity and the duration of your outbreak. So starting antivirals as soon as you realize that you're getting an outbreak is going to help reduce the number of days that you have your outbreak and reduce the amount of pain and discomfort that you feel with it. In addition, there are some things you can do to help reduce the symptoms that you're having so that they're not quite so bothersome. So wearing loose clothing and cotton underwear can make you more comfortable. Um, you can use some drying agents like cornstarch, which can help dry up the lesions by absorbing some of that extra moisture. You can sprinkle cornstarch directly over your genitals or to make yourself like a little bath called a sitz bath with some cornstarch and some water in it um, and soaking in it for 15 minutes twice a day. 
You can also use an anesthetic spray, so like a spray that has a numbing agent in it directly on the skin, and that's going to temporarily numb some of those nerve endings that are causing you to have pain when you have an outbreak. So you'll see these at the pharmacy in the area where they sell sprays to reduce the pain of sunburn or hemorrhoids. Uh, so check out that area of the store if you're looking for a spray. Some people are going to have a little bit of skin irritation with these, so it's not the perfect solution, but some people do find it to be soothing. You're looking for something that's active ingredient is either xylocaine or procaine, or generally ends with the word cane. You can always ask a pharmacist if you're having trouble finding a product, or you can just ask your healthcare provider. The other thing that can be used is a black tea. So you can either take a moist tea bag and put it directly against the lesion, or you can put the tea bag into a sitz bath or a warm bath and use that as a soap. Some people also find that an ice pack applied to the genitals can also provide comfort, or in the case of an oral outbreak, you can actually put ice directly on your mouth. It is important to know that when you're having an outbreak, it is very important to avoid intercourse with someone who does not already have a herpes infection, because when you're having an outbreak is when there is the highest likelihood of transmission. The time that a herpes infection lasts depends on whether it's your first or primary outbreak or whether you've had outbreaks before. The first outbreak is typically the longest and it can last anywhere from two to four weeks. When you're having a recurrent or not your first outbreak, those tend to be shorter and they can last anywhere from two to 10 days. While herpes is transmitted, between mucous membranes, it's important to know that you can actually get an outbreak anywhere on your mouth or anywhere in what we call the boxer shorts area. So basically from your belly button down to your upper thighs. And the area where you get your outbreaks may have nothing to do with the way that you initially got the virus. So transmission of the virus is going to happen between mucous membranes, but your outbreaks could be on your thigh, on your buttocks, on your back, on your lower belly. People who have oral infections can actually get outbreaks in their nose, and you don't have to have had sexual contact with that part of your body in order to have an outbreak there. The virus actually travels along nerve roots, and so once the virus is in your system, it can show up in different places. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of What's Up With Your Down There. I hope you learned a little something about herpes today. Don't forget, you can always submit questions to me here at What's Up With Your Down There, by calling 503-660-8689, by emailing what's up with your down there at gmail.com, or by going to www.whatsupwithyourdownthere.com. You can like us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or via the KBOO Community Radio website. To be clear, the views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of my wonderful employer, Legacy Health Systems. Furthermore, this is not a substitute for medical advice from a healthcare professional. Thanks for tuning in. I look forward to answering your questions on the next episode. This podcast was made possible by a generous community grant from the American College of Nurse Midwives and the Francis T. Thatcher Foundation. Original music by Joe McKenzie with vocals by Christina Cano. Artwork by Sarah J. Elliott. This podcast was produced at KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. KBOO.FM. Thanks for listening. KBOO.